You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2011. Today's episode is titled Living in Reality. When most people think about work, they typically think about tangible reality. Generally, most view work as something that is performed in the tangible world and must be done in their own strength. Furthermore, it is a virtue to be considered a self-made person, a person who overcomes adversity and obstacles to define his or her. necessary are not sufficient to truly succeed in life. Wise people realize that to live in reality requires divine intervention, divine empowerment, and divine direction in every area of life. Only people who are doing God's will according to God's ways can build enduringly successful organizations. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Living in Reality. Well, good morning. I want to talk to you this morning about living in reality. Does anybody want to live there? You know, that's where God is. He is in reality. We are the ones that live in unreality. What I want to do is I want to take you to a text in Acts chapter 3. So if you want to begin looking there. And I just want to read a story, make a few comments about the story, and use this story as a picture of what it looks like to live in reality. And then talk to us specifically about how, what this looks like in our lives. Okay? So we want to make it very practical. So the story is Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole text to you. It's 10 verses here. Then we'll, uh, we'll go through it and look at it a little bit deeper, and then we'll do the application. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being called to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. How would you like to have Peter look straight at you? Maybe that was a penetrating look. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Well, Father, we want to commit this time to you this morning. We pray that your spirit would soften our hearts to receive your truth. That we would indeed have ears to hear. We would have eyes to see. And we would have a heart to obey. So, Father, just uh, do whatever you need to do in us today so we can be the person that you want us to be. So may this time, this teaching, be a tool of transformation in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let's break the text down a little bit. First of all, we want to look at the first first three verses here. I'm going to read it again. You know, repetition is the way we learn. You okay with repetition? Okay, we do it all the time, but it seems that when we become adults, uh, once we've uh, read a book, you know, we've read the book, we only read it once. We go to a seminar, we go to a seminar once. You know, we we think we've heard a sermon, that's, we've heard it, we don't need to hear it again. We need to learn repetition is good. Repetition reinforces. Repetition is the key to education. So I'm going to read it to you again, and I'll make a few comments this time. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, does that seem strange to you? The time of prayer, this was a Jewish thing. 
You know, the Jewish custom was you had three times of prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. These guys are Christians. You guys go up to prayer three in the afternoon. Do you do that? Why is he doing that? What's going on here? Well, I think part of what we have to see here is that uh, when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, it was not birthed in a vacuum. I think sometimes we think that Christians, just it's just all of a sudden it came about. You know, just popped into existence. There's no historical context. That is not reality. You want reality? Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. In fact, when you look at how Peter and Paul developed their understanding of Christianity, you know what you find? It came from the Old Testament. Now, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a mind shift for a lot of us because most of us think the Old Testament's not relevant. How many of you regularly read the Old Testament? Okay. Well, that's good. One of my first spiritual fathers, what he told me to do when I was in, I was probably 18 years old, and he started teaching me. He said, I don't want you to read the New Testament for right now. I said, why? He said, because you cannot profoundly understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. So I want you to spend time in the Old Testament. He gave me a series of commentaries on the Pentateuch, and that was what we studied. It seemed like for six months or a year, we just focused on the Old Testament. He was giving me the reality that Christianity is rooted in the truth of the revelation of God in the Old Testament, and particularly in the nation of Israel. So Acts chapter 2 records the birth of the church. It's birth out of the event at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit invades man in a new way, but not out of context, very much in context. And so now there's some wonderment about what's going on because, you see, there was a paradigm shift that happened in Acts chapter 2. That paradigm shift was, what's this Holy Spirit thing all about? You know, and how does this all fit in with what we've been doing all these years, all the things we've been taught? So they're in this process of trying to understand this so as they're doing this they have not abandoned the tradition Isn't that an important thing to write note if you're when you're growing in christ you don't throw off the tradition that you've had now you may grow into a different understanding but you continue following that tradition until god makes it clear that you're to discontinue it i have no doubt at some point they became clear that they were to discontinue this tradition but right now, at this point in the stage of the development of the church, they, they continue to practice a lot of the things they did as Jews. So one day, you know, it's like once upon a time, one day, okay, they go up and they go up to the temple at the time of prayer. Now, here's a picture of the temple for you, and I just want to show you a little bit about it. Um, first of all, this... Uh, this gate beautiful is, is number 11. It's right here. Okay? So this is the beggars right along in here, somewhere along in here. And probably a good place for a beggar to be. I mean, people that go to the temple probably have some sense of, want, of wanting to give. Would you not think? Yeah, they, they probably are, are somewhat generous. And so this is probably a strategic place if you're going to beg, be right outside the temple here. So Peter, Peter, who's and John, are the ones that are coming up here. Now it's interesting. Peter is brothers Andrew. John's brother was James, and you may recall that James was the first martyr. Did you know that? The book of James was not written by James the apostle. Okay, because James the apostle was martyred in Acts chapter twelve. There's a record of that. Okay, so they were Jews upon whom the Holy Spirit was poured out. They were part of what became known as the way. The first name for Christianity was not Christianity. It was called the way. Now, that's very significant because Christianity is the way of life. And I didn't say a way. There's a difference between a way and the way. The world, the common thinking, the politically correct view today is Christianity is a way. But Christianity claims it is the way because Christ said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way to reality 
because I am the only way to God. So that's the claim Christianity makes. Later, Christians would be called Christians. That didn't happen until much later. So the early church, they weren't even called Christians. But they were known to be part of this movement called the Way. Peter and John were going up to prayer in the afternoon. And they run into this crippled man. He's obviously resigned to his state. And so what he was doing is, I've got to live, I've got to eat, so what am I going to do? I can't do anything. Or maybe he didn't have any vision he could do anything, so he chooses to beg. His concern was to meet the physical needs while in his crippled state. So he asked Peter and John for money. Now, we're going to make an application of that in a minute, but to just, just point out the condition of this man He is living in tangible physical reality with no thought of anything beyond that and no thought of anything beyond feeding feeding himself at his next meal. So living strategically for him was what am I going to have for dinner and how am I going to get there? I've got to beg and get some money so I can buy it. So that was his strategic living moment by moment. A lot of us live that way, by the way. The strategic planning for us is, you know, know, I'm going to go to bed at night at 10 o'clock. That's a strategic plan. Verses 4 through 7. Now, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. So this guy, when he asked for money, he's not looking at him. He just got his head down. You may have run into people like that. They don't, they may, they're talking to you, but they're not looking at you. Because they're not interested in interchange. They're not interested in making contact with you. What they want to do is they want to get you to give them money. Okay, and so they just have their head down. So Peter looked straight at him, and so did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Frankly, that's what my wife says to me when she wants my attention. She says, look at me. She's a teacher, so I've learned to look. <laughs> that's very, it's very wise. It's not safe to not look. Okay, so <clears throat> look at us. So the man gave them his attention. So now he looks up at him, expecting to get something. Then Peter says something, kind of startling. Silver and gold, I don't have any. Now, wait a minute. How could that be? Now, Peter and John are representatives of the Most High God, who created everything. He created the silver and the gold. He said all the silver and gold is mine, all the cattle on a thousand hills, all mine. How is it that Peter and John, his emissaries, don't have any? That'd be like saying Warren Buffett's children don't have any money. Can you imagine that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> they probably have more money than they could ever spend. So how could, how could Peter and John not have silver or gold? May I suggest something? They didn't need any. You ever thought about the fact that God gives you what you need? And if you don't need it, you're not going to have it? It's a little different view of money, isn't it? We'll talk about money more in a little bit. But just wanted to point that out to you. You see, it wasn't any big deal. They were not fretting. You know, those most of us, if we didn't have money, I don't know that we'd be going to prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Would we? No, we wouldn't be doing it. We'd be trying to figure out, how can I make a buck? i got to get some money for tonight, man. You know, i got a hot date, so got to have some money. You know, we wouldn't be thinking about going to prayer. So there, there's a different mindset going on here. And maybe that's something we need to see, is what is the mindset about money? And we'll show you that in a second. So silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Walk. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Walk. So Peter gives the beggar something better. Something better than silver gold. Something he was not even seeking. He didn't even, wasn't even on his radar. He gave him an, an encounter. A transforming encounter with God. Now most of us, we look at that and say, gee, that was Peter and John. What's that got to do with me? 
I mean, best thing I could be is a beggar, maybe. I couldn't be Peter and John. Well, part of that is because we don't dwell in reality. You see, Peter and John couldn't do this either unless they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Hey, it's not them. They were selected, called by God for this particular role. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that role. And by the way, whatever your call is, you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. So if you need resources, you'll have resources. If you don't need resources, you probably won't have resources. Okay? You know, God seems to work on this, you know, need-to-know basis and need-resources basis. Have you noticed that? Like at the end of John and first part of Acts, you see two examples where Jesus was interacting with them and, you know, they wanted to know things and he said, you don't need to know. The Father's not going to tell you if you don't need to know. By the way, it's another clue about parenting. When you think about parenting, parents need to know about their children. So God will give them revelation. Somebody that's not a parent doesn't need to know. So they probably won't see what the parents see, which is why it's so important that you identify your parents, both your natural parents, which we generally know that. What we generally don't know is who our spiritual parents are. When you get under your spiritual parents, then you get under people who have been gifted and anointed by God to give you insight and direction as to what you need to do in life. Does anybody here need some wisdom in life? Huh? You need direction? Okay. Are you under spiritual parents? I don't see any hands. Uh, one or two, maybe. Well, if you're under spiritual parents that are really walking with God, you'll have wisdom and insight. But if you're not, if you're trying to do it alone... You're just going to be struggling. Okay, so after this divine encounter, Peter's actions then align with his words. You see, this is what faith looks like. There's alignment between my words and my actions. We call that congruence. It's a big, big $5 word. You know, but it means alignment here. So he took the beggar's hand to get him up, to pull him up. So the response of Peter was the transformation is better than money and I believe it, and I'm going to act on it. Okay, go on to the rest of the text. All right, then it says, He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Now, that's a startling thing, isn't it? Here's a guy who's been begging for years, a cripple. No one has ever seen him walk, and all of a sudden, he jumps to his feet. It wasn't just a casual getting up. It wasn't, a you know, kind of... A, pushing himself up. Oh, man, it's a struggle. He jumps straight up. Now, what this is here, this is faith. Both on the part of Peter, who's reaching down to grab him, and the beggar, who's responding to this. Now, why is it that this beggar would respond? Why would he believe Peter? Would you believe Peter? I've been crippled for all these years. I'm just begging, trying to, you know, get money to feed myself. And this crazy lunatic comes along and says, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to, I'm going to heal you. Right. Yeah, we're going to believe that, right? No, we don't, we don't believe that. But something in him that was beyond him. See, we can't do these things in and of ourselves. By the way, um, we're in a time today, it's, it's uh, sometimes, some people characterize our culture as postmodern. Have you heard that term, postmodern? It's obviously a, a discussion point with philosophers and things to try to describe the culture. But there are certainly characteristics of the culture that are associated with the postmodern, postmodern view of life. And, and one of the characteristics of postmodernism is called human potency. Human potency. That means humans have the ability to do whatever humans want to do. That's an assumption. That's a point of faith. So when you're dealing with some postmodern who thinks they're a rationalist, you know, ask them how they know about human potency. They can't prove that. It's a point of faith. So that's, that's a lot of times what's going on with people is they believe they can do things because the culture says they can do it. You can do anything you want to do. Have you heard that? You can be anything you want to be. I heard parents telling their kids that. Can I suggest that, that they're lying? 
Okay? May I challenge you on that? You know, as a parent, your child can't be anything they want to be. They can only be what God designed them to be. So now, now you say, well, you're getting a little picky. Okay. I, I could go along with it under this condition. If when you say you can be anything you want to be, you are eliminating the flesh. And once you eliminate the flesh, then what you see is the real passion of God in you. Okay, then you can be anything you want to be, because you're, you're, the flesh is out of the way. But you got to get the flesh out of the way. So this guy did not have the potency in and of himself to jump up or to believe Peter. He had to be empowered first in his heart and then in his body. It took a double empowerment for this thing to happen. And in verse 16, it tells us when Peter's describing this incident to others in the temple, because this created a stir in the temple. You know, <laughs> the Holy Spirit can create a stir. So wait a minute. This, this is not what we thought religion was all about. You know, this doesn't fit our paradigm. You know, what's this going on here? So he's trying to describe this later on in verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has given his com- this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Hey, take a look. By the way, one of the purposes of things like this, signs and wonders, healings, you look at Hebrews chapter 2, it says it's to validate the gospel. That's why God gives us these things. Sometimes we think supernatural things are for us. It's to make our life easier. It's to make it's to fit our agenda. No, God does things supernaturally to fit his agenda. That's what he's about. So this fit his agenda. He wanted to do something here. He's going to stir up their paradigm, and he's going to do it in a way that they're forced to deal with it. You know, when God shows up in reality and you can't deny it, I mean, we all probably have stories like that. I have some, but I don't have time to tell you. So let me, let me go on because I want to get the application. So what happened to his perceived need of money? Well, he is overwhelmed by the touch of God in his life. You notice that once he gets up, is he talking about money anymore? No, that conversation's gone. It's not relevant. It's not even on the radar. I mean, he's not so, wow, this is cool. Now I can go to work. You know, he's not saying that. He's so overwhelmed. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with going to work. Don't, don't misunderstand that comment. The point is, he's overwhelmed now with these spiritual fathers that have touched him in such a profound way, he can do nothing but praise God. And that's what happens when we get touched by the truth. When we meet reality, we're overwhelmed with God and what he's done for us. So does this mean that God will heal every physical infirmity? No. Even Jesus didn't do that. He healed a lot. He he cast out a lot of demons, but he didn't heal anybody. Have you ever thought about how we would have handled Jesus if we were his, his handler when he was here? You ever thought about that? I mean, that, that'd be kind of cool if we got to handle Jesus. You know, here we have the man that can solve it all. Any problem in the universe he could solve. Poverty, war, you know, anything. He can do it. Sickness, disease. Hey, this guy can solve it. If we were his handler, we would have written a different script for him think about that because see we're not thinking god's thoughts and perhaps that was what was going on with peter when when the lord starts telling peter after he after peter properly identified him and gave us that one of the keys to your destiny is to know your identity he says you are the christ the son of the living god and he says peter you're right based on that reality let me tell you what's going to happen to me you see, your identity gives birth to your destiny. That Jesus says, I'm going to go die. My destiny is eventually to die. My life purpose is to walk out what God has called me to do. It's leading to my death. And Peter says in the classic oxymoron, no, Lord. I mean, come on, how can you say that? Come on, Peter. See, that was Peter as, as Christ's handler thinking, i got a better plan. I can do it better than you can. But the Lord is very gracious to him. Peter then was restored and became one of the great apostles. So let me, let me make the application here. We tend to live like the crippled man 
in a state of unreality. You see, he was in unreality in the sense that he was only thinking about the tangible world. That's all he was thinking about. So he might have been at the right place, but he was asking for the wrong things. See, we get there too. When we get focused on the tangible world and we don't see what God is doing in the bigger picture and we don't ask what his will is in a situation, we are just like this crippled beggar here. We are, we are looking only at physical reality. And when we're only focused on tangible reality, we don't see what the real root issues are. You see, the real root issue of life is always in the spiritual. It's very easy to see that. Uh, is God a physical or spiritual being? God, it says God is spirit. That's what it says in Scripture. God is spirit. So, And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we have the spirit being that gives birth to a physical creation. So you can see that the physical came from the spiritual. So which one is the more fundamental reality? The spiritual reality is the more fundamental. It's what's given rise, giving birth to the physical reality. So each of us, fundamentally, we're physical beings. We're spiritual beings with physical manifestations. And that's the way we live. Whatever happened in our life, whatever's going on, is a physical manifestation of underlying spiritual reality. So he was focused on the wrong wrong thing. We do the same thing. We live in the tangible world, largely focused on the physical reality. So we're unable to recognize God's provision. He didn't really know what he needed. And... He was resigned to live in a crippled state physically and spiritually. In other words, he wasn't asking anybody to heal him. He just wanted money to live. Isn't that where we are? A bunch of beggars just asking for money to live. He was simply seeking to simply survive in that state, looking for physical food. He was not looking for spiritual food. Okay, so let's talk about how this applies to us. What does this mean to us? So let me just give you some illustrations of how we live in a crippled state, a state of unreality, a state focused on the tangible world and what our perceived needs in the tangible world disconnected from the real need that we have in the spiritual world. We want to talk about jobs. How many of you need jobs? How many of you frustrated with jobs? You're underemployed or whatever. Okay, how about money? How many of you need money? Money, money, money. And how many, how many have circumstances they don't like? You know, the heat's on, it's not pleasant, not fun. And, and how about this? How many need revelation? You just need revelation. What do I do here? Can we talk about those four things as applications of what it is and compare living in a crippled state to living in a healed state? Okay, and hopefully you can see I want the healed state. All right, so let's just take a look at these. So we'll start with a little cartoon, kind of wake you up here. Oh, that was the introduction, see. So here's a little cartoon here. And I don't know if I can read it from up there, so I may have to get Phil. Let's see. I can do it. Yeah. All right. What are you offering the peasants in your election speech today? Uh, nothing. They can afford to refuse. This is, you can tell this is Obama. You get that? Okay. Okay. And I'm not trying, and hopefully if there's Obama fans here, I don't wish to offend you. Okay. That's not my purpose. Okay. So nothing that they can afford to refuse. Then he says, elect me and I promise you free health care. Yip, hip, hooray. Then he says, free housing, free clothing, food stamps, yay. It's getting good. And, every, and jobs for everybody, yay. Any questions? One question. What do we need jobs for? Good question, right? Well, a lot of us kind of think that way. If we had enough money, we wouldn't work. We just go play golf all day or go fishing or, you know, some of you go to Bodega Bay and, you know, go surfing with the sharks or whatever, you know. But you wouldn't work. You know, we, we work is something you have to do. Work is something that's not pleasant. So we view jobs like the world, something we have to do to make money and live. Isn't that the way we use it? 
I got to do it. I got to get up in the morning and go, I can't wait till Saturday. Then we have a term, was it TGIF? Thank God it's what? Friday. Yeah, yeah. We, we're all excited about Friday. Hey, Friday, hey, I'm playing party time. Okay? In fact, in Texas, they get so excited about Friday, they start on Thursday night. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Okay? So this is the way we view work. We have no sense about the spiritual reality behind work. We don't think at that level. Well, just take a look at this text. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, you guys probably know this text very well because it's, it's a, a, probably the greatest expression of the Christian gospel that we have. For by, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not for you from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the challenge with this text is we like the first part of it, up to the four. Okay? Up to that point right here, that's pretty cool. But once we get there, we're not sure exactly what that's all about. So we tend to twist that. I know growing up, when I grew up, I thought this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, was all about stuff I did in the church. It's all about doing good works in the church. And we should do good works in the church, but that the text does not limit it there. In fact, this word here, works, is the Greek word ergon, which is the common word translated for work. It could be any kind of work. Construction work, management, sales, uh, farming, you know, artistic work, uh, any kind of work at all. But it was about work. And one of the nuances is it's clearly, it's about working is a whole lot better than not working. That's the implication of the word. It was a very positive word in their culture. So when, Jesus, when, when Paul uses this to talk about the purpose of the gospel, and by the way, do you notice what, what this for is all about? He's telling you the reason. You are saved for what? Okay, most of us think, well, gee, I'm saved so I can go to heaven. I'm saved so I can live forever. Well, those are true, but that's not what he's choosing to focus on right here. He's choosing to focus on something else. You're saved to work. Oh, my goodness. I hate my job. Okay? I hate my commute. You know, I don't like those customers that come in and make all those demands. And Isn't that how we think? Because we don't have a biblical worldview of work. You see, when God created the universe, he made human beings the highest order of beings. And he put his image on us. And he says to us, now I want you to rule my physical universe. I want you to do it like I would do it. And I want you to do it by multiplying and mastering. That's the creation mandate. And then then what happened? Sin. Sin came along. And sin did not change that mandate. Sin made the mandate harder. Now work is harder. Because we have sin. By the way, I challenge you as you look at your work and you look at all the problems that you face in your work, Look at it and say, okay, where, where is the sin? Because, see, if it weren't for the sin, work would be a piece of cake. It would be like being in a garden. That's what Adam and Eve had. So what you have here is the reality that God made work. It's a good thing. Sin is getting in the way. And so now, how do we deal with the sin problem? Christ. He dealt with a sin problem. So now we can do the work we were put here to do, and we could do it in a way that honors God and we reflect Him. That's what work is about. We, Most of us in this room, well, we're all called to work. Most of us work somewhere in the in a marketplace. There are some that work in their homes, their homemakers. That's work. There are some that work in the context of the Christian community. That's work. But when you go to your office, that's work too. And it's all of divine origin, and God has ordained that you do it. So until you get a biblical view of it, you will never be a great worker 
You will never glorify God in the workplace. You will never truly be a minister of the gospel in the workplace. And by the way, the greatest way to be a minister of the gospel is to be a great worker. That's how you really preach the gospel. Okay, I've got to speed it up here. We've got to talk about money. We view money as a tool to do our will. Money is all about us. Can't wait to get that money so I can feed my flesh and do whatever it is I want to do. Well, let's just take a text here. This is a text out of James chapter 4. It says this. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I want to reword that for you to kind of give you a sense of what I think the text is saying. It's so that you may spend what you get as a consumer. Isn't that what you are? Wall Street says you're a consumer. The government says you're a consumer. The economists call you consumers. Is that what you are? If you think you're a consumer, it's all about me and what I want to do, me and my pleasure, me and my agenda. If that's what it's about, how do you think God looks at that? What do you think your relationship with God might be? Well, let's just take a look at the rest of the text. Next verse says, you adulterous people. Pretty nasty, isn't it? Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? You consumers hate God. Furthermore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. By the way, he's talking to Christians here. Don't isolate this out. He's talking to unbelievers. No, he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers who think non-biblically about money. Anytime we think about money as something to serve us, we have a non-biblical worldview of money, and we have become an enemy of God. Yeah, you got to let that sink in, don't you? Because everybody in this room has been guilty of that. We've all done it. And we're probably, to some degree, still doing it. We've got to get a new view of money. We've got to get a biblical view of money. May I suggest to you real simply, money is one thing. It is a tool to do the will of God. That's all money is. It is a tool to buy true riches. The scriptures make it clear. There's something far more valuable than money. It's called wisdom. It's called righteousness. It's called holiness. These are real riches, true riches, riches that will will transcend this life to eternity. Money has value only in this life to help us do the will of God. In the next life, there will be no money. Proverbs says this, wealth, referring to money, is worthless in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death, referring to that day of wrath. Okay, got to press on here. All right, let's talk about circumstances. Circumstances, we seek relief from circumstances, not growth through circumstances. You know what, what happens? Something Pressure's on, the heat's on, got a problem. Just how do I get out of this thing? Get me out of this trap. Isn't that how we think? Well, is that a biblical approach? Huh? We want it to be, don't it? We want, we want God to come in and rescue us, to take us out of traps. Well, let's just take a look at a situation here and see what happened. Remember in Acts chapter 16? I'll just read it to you. Once, this is Paul and Silas and Luke. We were going to the place of prayer. You see, they're still practicing some of these Jewish traditions. Uh, we were met by the slave, a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. You realize that you know, demons can be prophetic. You ever wonder sometimes of the prophets you run into, whether or not they're demon-possessed or the Holy Spirit? You ever wonder that? Just a thought, okay? Okay? Anyway, so she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. 
This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That was true. It's all true. She kept this up for many days. That became very annoying. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, you notice he didn't address the girl? Talking to the Spirit. Okay? In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. You see, he didn't rebuke her for lying because she wasn't lying. No. He was just annoyed. All right? So... In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope for making money was gone, they, they panicked. They got angry. They got frustrated because it's all about the money, you know. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, I don't know why they didn't seize Luke, but apparently they didn't seize Luke. Just, just seized Paul and Silas. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. You see, Philippi was, was not a Jewish city. Philippi was on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. It was largely occupied by retired Roman soldiers. See, the Roman Empire, the way they, they put their outer guard was retirees in cities around the Roman Empire. And so they would become the early warning system in case there was an invasion. Soldiers would understand the danger. They would, they would have access to the Roman roads and they'd send the couriers. So these people in Philippi retired Roman soldiers. So these men are Jews. You're not one of us. And are throwing our city into, into an uproar because of advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack and Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell. Sound like this is the middle. And he fastened their feet in the stocks. What I understand, it was probably something like this. Stripped, beaten, cold, starved, thirsty, bottom of the prison. You think that's tough? Anybody want that one? Huh? There they are. Now, I don't know if it's you, but... I would be having a conversation with God. It would go something like this. uh, uh, Lord, um, I'm your servant. I'm here doing your bidding. I'm faithfully obeying you. What are you doing to me? That's what I would do. Would you do that too? Yeah, probably so. Well, let's just take a look at what they did. Okay? About midnight. This has been going on a while. Probably 8, 10 hours, 12 hours, something like this. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, you know, no, we'd be doing that right. And the other prisoners were listening to them. You see what this is? When you are so transformed into what true reality is, physical reality is secondary. My relationship with my father, my communion with him is far more important than physical pain. And that's a very, very tough place to get. It's a very mature place to get. But they were there. And when you get there, you touch others. Look at the witness, the testimony. They weren't passing out tracts, were they? No. People were watching them live. To watch how they lived and how they responded to circumstances, and that was the most powerful witness of all. You see, circumstances are designed by God not to torment us, to punish us. They're designed by God to perfect us, to cause us to grow up and mature. Also, they reveal how perfected we are. When you get into a circumstance and you look at how you respond, you see something about how mature you really are. Okay, so let me go on. Last thing, Revelation. We've talked about jobs. We've talked about money. We've talked about circumstances. And the point is, how do you live in a crippled state? And how do you live in reality? Hopefully you can see there's a big difference. Now, the fourth one, the final one I want to do is Revelation. And this is Curtis. This was Joe's request. So I'm, I'm 
honoring my good friend Joe Collinger. He wanted this up here. So what everybody needs to live life well is revelation, knowledge, and wisdom. Would you agree? Doesn't matter what you're doing, you need knowledge and wisdom to do it. Okay, so for those who don't know Christ, there's only one source of revelation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there's only one way you can get revelation, and that is through the physical world, the tangible world that you live in. By the grace of God and a phenomena that theologians call common grace, people that are living in rebellion against God can learn things about how to live in this creation, and they can have a level of success. It's not high, but they can have a level of success. And that's a good thing because we're around a lot of people that don't profess Christ. And we work with a lot of people that don't profess Christ. If they could have no level of success at all, where would we be? We'd be, in a, we'd be in a tank. It'd be really tough. So this is the grace of God that he allows people who even rebel against him to have a level of success. Now, what about those who know the Lord? Well, those who know the Lord have three sources of revelation. You have three ways to gain insight and wisdom and discernment about what to do. Three different resources that you can draw on to discern how to solve a problem. How many of you solve problems? Okay. We all solve problems on some level. When you face a problem, isn't it nice to know, hey, I've got multiple tools in my tool chest. If I don't know the Lord, i got one tool. But if I know the Lord, i got three. What do you have? Okay, number one, you do have... You have general revelation, which is physical reality. And number two, you have special revelation, which is the Scripture. Did you know that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good ergon. That work that you're assigned to do, that Aragon that God has called you to do, the way you get equipped to do it is the Word of God. We call a meeting like this a church meeting. I think you you could have biblical basis for calling it an equipping meeting. What you do here should be equipping you to go do your ministry wherever you're assigned. This is what this should be about. We should be an equipping center here. Because the Word of God is the most foundational source of revelation. It's the revelation through which you look at all other revelation. You see, one of the things that messes up the unsaved, because they don't have the Word of God, they skew their interpretation of general revelation. And that's what's going on with the theory of evolution and all of that. It's a skewed understanding. Okay, you have one more source of revelation, and that is called specific revelation. This is the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because you know the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. That means you can inquire of the Lord. You remember when David was uh, being attacked by the Philistines? It's just an example of it. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, David. You know, and and David had inquired before. He said, don't use the strategy I've used in the past. I'm going to change your strategy. This time I want you to take your army and I want you to go and hide in these trees and you wait till you hear the wind rustling the leaves of the trees, and then you charge, and I will give them to you. See, that was a specific strategy for a specific person in a specific situation. You see, that's the way the Holy Spirit works. And you have access to that. Everyone here probably has some special battle going on, a unique battle that you're facing, and nobody else is facing it quite like you. Well, guess what? You have special revelation available to you if you want it. How do you get special revelation? You inquire of the Lord. You may need advisors. You may need counselors to inquire with you. But you have that availability. So you have all three sources of revelation, which means that you as a believer have an edge on anybody that doesn't know the Lord. You want an edge? You got it. You just got to learn how to use it. Okay, let me wrap it up here. Don't resign yourself to simply existing in a crippled state. It's easy for us to do that. Just live like the crippled beggar, thinking only about tomorrow, physical reality, no recognition about what a biblical worldview is and what's really going on. We live in this isolated cocoon of a world. 
Don't, don't live there. Allow godly people to facilitate the touch of God in your life. You see, that, that beggar did not get out of that state by himself. What makes you think you can get out of your state by yourself? See, God has made us to live in community. If we don't learn to connect and hear the voice of God through others, then you're probably never going to go very far. You're going to be stuck pretty much with what you've got. In fact, what you've got right now in your life, to a large degree, is a product of your choices, good or bad. So if you want, you want to improve what's going on in your life, you need to make better choices, and that comes from tapping into God's will and God's ways. Build your life on sound spiritual reality. That is a biblical worldview which is rooted in faith in God. And let me just summarize the, the applications here. You see the, uh, the four things we talked about, jobs, money, difficult circumstances, and revelation. Now I want to talk, I'm going to describe the crippled state, and I'm going to describe the healed state. Okay? So the crippled state for jobs is what's required to make money. That's the attitude. That's the perspective. The healed state of jobs is it's a divinely ordained place to grow and minister. The crippled state for money is a view that it's a tool to do my will. If you look at money, it's all about you and doing your will, then you're crippled. But if you have God's perspective, then it's a tool to do his will. When it comes to the difficult circumstances, the crippled state says, man, I need to get out of here. Get me out of this place. But the healed state says, hey, it's a place of growth and obedience. And finally, if you're in a crippled state, you have one source of revelation. But if you know the Lord and you tap in, you have three sources of revelation. Who wants to live in a crippled state? Who wants to live in the healed state? Well, Lord, I want to lift up these people that are holding up their hands right now and declaring that they want to be healed. They want to live biblically. They want to walk in your reality. They want freedom from unreality. They no longer want to be like that beggar, that crippled beggar at the gate to the temple, not realizing the treasure he could have, but being, but settling for such a low level of subsistence. Give us grace to step up and take the real treasure. And Father, we know as we take on that real treasure, you will take care of all of our needs because you're a good father. So, Father, give us grace to step into that place, that place of commitment, that place of faithfulness, that place of diligence, that place of obedience, that place of submission. Give us grace to be there, to live there. And, Father, may our lives be so amazing as others look at us, they can't help but be drawn to you. So make us that that sweet, sweet savor of Jesus in how we live at home, at work, in our communities. Grant us that grace in Jesus' name.